Bibles this morning and turn with me to John chapter 14. We've taken a hiatus from our study in, in the Gospel of John and turned our attention the last couple of weeks, one to Palm Sunday and then two to, uh, to Resurrection Sunday. Um, but we're going to jump back in where we left off. We've been exploring, if you're visiting with us, we've been exploring the seven I Am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. He makes seven of them. Um, I am the bread of the life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Um, I am the resurrection and the life was the last one that we looked at. Now, this morning, we're looking at the sixth of the seven, um, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so there's sort of three parts tied up into this one. Um, this is, a, this is a, a, a cause to celebrate. All of these things are pointing us to Jesus as in his person um, and what can, what's contained within who he is. Um, uh, oftentimes, when we look at Jesus, we focus on his work and not necessarily on his person. But everything that he did was contained in his very being. It wasn't just limited to uh, the work that he did, but we trust Jesus because of who he is and what he did, not only because of what he did. Um, and, and that's where our affections are stirred. We see these things contained within his very person. I mean, it's very, very uh, exciting. So even as we come and look at Jesus as the way, the truth, and life, and we'll read this passage just in a moment here. Even as we look at Jesus as the way, the truth, and life, we see three descriptors, but we see those descriptors um, as one, right? Even, even these seven statements, we view them as one. And we're sort of like, we're sort of putting a sphere before us. And if you're looking at a sphere, you're looking directly at it, you see sort of some aspects of it. But then what we do each week is we sort of rotate that sphere. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's giving us a, a picture of his divine nature as that sphere sort of rotates and we can look and see clearly who he is. One thing that he's clearly stating to us as we look at these I am statements is that he is God. Um, that he's asserting his very deity. He says, when he says, I am... Uh, the mind of his hearers, the minds of his hearers would have gone back to uh, the, the, uh, the account in Exodus where Moses stood before the burning bush. And when God was sending him to deliver his people out of Egypt, he said to him, who am I going to say that sent me? And, and God said to him out of the burning bush, I am who I am. I am has sent you. And so our minds immediately go back to that. Our minds immediately go back to that understanding, and we know that we know that Jesus is saying very clearly, along with other accounts in this gospel, in the gospels as a whole, in the New Testament as a whole, in Scripture as a whole, are pointing us to the fact that Jesus is Jesus is God. So that's the first part for us uh, this morning as we consider what it means when Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." That He is asserting very clearly His deity to us. But let's read this text together. We're just going to read six verses this morning in John chapter 14, just the first six verses in John chapter 14. So John 14, 1 through 6. Let me read this for us. The Holy Spirit says to us through his servant, John, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the, the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, 
We do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we come to your word this morning and as we consider what Jesus is saying to us here in this passage, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be opened and our minds would be prepared to receive the truth of, of your word. God, we recognize that a statement like this is, is sometimes not easy for us. It might be easy for us on, on an initial understanding, but it might be hard because of the sinful flesh that we, that, that we still inhabit. But God, we desire to be a people who are putting that off continually, not because of our efforts or because of what we do, Lord God, but because of who you are and because of what you have done. Lord God, we affirm together that we are free to do all that you command us. Lord God, it is, it is a, a, a loving act to send your son to die in our place, to deal with that sin, to deal with that brokenness, to deal with that relationship that was, that was torn in two by the, the coming of sin into the world. Lord God, but now we stand as those who, if we have proclaimed uh, Christ, if we have put our faith and trust and confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the, dead, from the dead, we believe that that right relationship with God can be restored. God, we know that we live in a world where even our relationships with other people are oftentimes strained. Lord God, I pray that we would take this text this morning, that we would recognize what it is saying to us, that, we would, that you would cause it to come to bear on every area and aspect of our lives. As those who know you and who love you, not know you just in a, in a simple headway, but know you in every area of our lives. Know you as those whose affections have been stirred for the person of Jesus Christ. That we would love, adore, and cherish. Even as this morning we, we, we had families up front, as we prayed for them, we prayed over them, Mark prayed over them. And as they affirmed to raise their children in homes that are intentional with the gospel, Lord, I pray that the gospel would never grow old for us. It's not going to be the constant, uh, the constant thing that's before our eyes. Even as Psalm 25, 15 says, I fix my eyes ever on the Lord. He will pluck my feet from the net. God, there are things that vie for our attention in our world that stir inside of us and we wonder what's going on. Why are these things happening to me? But we recognize that Jesus is addressing all of that in his very person. He is addressing the pain, the suffering, the hurt that we might feel. The good news of the gospel is remedying those things. So God, as we prepare again our minds and, and we pray that our hearts would be open to receive this, this word. Lord, I pray that we would recognize that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen. Okay, so even as we look at this text this morning, there's, a, there's just a thought that I want to give you coming out of it. This is sort of going to guide our time together and direct us. So this is kind of our big idea this morning. Jesus' proclamation that he is the way, the truth, and the life indicates that he is God. And despite our inclination and desire to forge our own path, 
the exclusive way to the Father. Jesus' proclamation that he is the way, the truth, and the life indicates that he is God, and despite our own inclination and desire to forge our own path, the exclusive way to God the Father. So I'm going to give you a bit of an outline, and we're just going to run through these. These are, these are complex out of this text, so just listen up. First point, the way. Second point, the truth. Third point, the life. <laughs> that was a joke. Okay. Um, we're just going to let the text guide us here. So uh, three things, the way, the truth, and the life. First of all, Jesus calls himself the way. Remember, we can't separate these things from each other, right? We're looking at that sphere, and we're just slightly turning it. We're, just, we're looking at different aspects of who God is, or who Jesus is, and who God is for us in Jesus. Okay. So first of all, Jesus says that he is the way. So first, we just want to back up a little bit into, into chapter 13 and sort of kind of get the context because we sort of just dove into what Jesus was saying. We just dove into to, to this, this almost statement that he's making uh, related to, to not letting our hearts be troubled. Um, and we see that there's sort of this interaction going on with Peter. So go back to verse 36 in chapter 13. And let me just read through the end of... Uh, chapter 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. And then we run into chapter 14, where Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. So this is the context. It's almost, this is almost like a, because this is a troubling chunk of text, right? Verses 36 through 30, uh, through, through the end of the chapter, through 38 and chapter 13. That's kind of troubling. Jesus is saying, hey, you can't follow me now. And these guys, they were like, they were thinking to themselves, well, we've been following, we, we gave up everything. Beforehand, before this, we were, we existed in a world where, like, if your father was a fisherman, you became a fisherman. And, and for a lot of the disciples, that was the case, right? So there, there, there are some of the disciples who were fishermen. So their dads were fishermen, so they'd be fishermen. Their sons would be fishermen. And that was their trade. And so a lot of these guys have given this up, and they've been following Jesus hard. Like, everything they left behind, and now they're following Jesus in this, this intense and unique way. And so just think about when, when, when Jesus says to Peter, like, Hey, where I'm going, you can't follow. He's like, wait a second, I've been following you this whole time. Like, I've given up everything. I've, I've moved away. I've, I've, I just wander, we just wander around. Like, and I'm, I'm following you. And he's like, I'm, I'm going to follow you no matter what. Like, if, if, if up until this point that hasn't been an indication of my intent to follow you, then, then I don't know what, what's going on. And it's almost this really sort of frustrating conversation that he has. It's like, but Peter just asks the question, where are you going? And Jesus doesn't say where he's going. He just says, well, you can't come. And, 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 and so they're just thinking to themselves, what, what on earth is going on? Um, and then there's even this questioning of Peter when he says, when, when he says wherever you go, I'll, I'll follow you. I'll lay down my life for you. And, and then Jesus really is asking in verse 38, Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. And so we sort of even like have Jesus like coming back at him and saying, are you? Like, are you with me? Um, you can say that, you can speak that, but, but there's more that needs to happen in order for you to follow me truly. 
And so Jesus then says in 14, verse 1, because this is deeply troubling, where it's like, we've left everything, we're following you, we're doing everything that you ask us to do, um, and then now you're questioning this, Jesus, and Jesus says in 14, 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe in me. So up until this point, whatever he had been calling them to do, they've been doing, they had their WWJD bracelets on or whatever it was, and, and, and they were not getting the big picture overall, though. Remember, remember, we've been talking about this as we sort of move to Resurrection Sunday. We move from Palm Sunday and then throughout Holy Week to Resurrection Sunday. The people and the disciples still were looking for this political, this political deliverance, right? An occupied people centered in this, in this, in this, in this Roman Empire, uh, a previously um, very uh, highly thought about country or established nation. Uh, that had lots of military might, political success, reduced to this small occupied group of somewhat weirdos in the middle of Palestine. And that was what was going on. They're, they're looking for the socio-political restoration. And so when Peter says that he wants to follow right now, he thinks probably that they're headed to the war room. He's thinking to himself, okay, so now we're going to go grab our swords, and we're going to go and, which is bizarre anyways, because it's like, there's a bunch of like, tax collectors and, and, and fishermen, and just these dudes who, who probably don't have a lot of experience with a sword, they're just like, okay, now we're going to go throw, overthrow the Roman Empire, that's where they're thinking. Um, and so their minds are moving that direction, and really where we are at here in John chapter 14 is about 48 hours from where Jesus is going to be crucified. We're about 48 hours from this. So this is really during the ramp-up period. This is really during the ramp-up period. So he's thinking to himself, well, let's go grab our swords and let's take out some Romans. And Peter just can't even get out of this headspace. And if you just move forward a couple of chapters to chapter 18, in the garden, after the Last Supper, in, in John chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, John records this happening. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, cutting off, cutting, off, cutting off his right ear. So, I don't know, maybe that was what he was intended to do, but I think that just sort of like demonstrates his, his inability to like wield a sword very well. Like, you're like, I'm going to take this guy out and like chop his ear off. Like that, that I, don't, I don't know, that might be speaking. And, it, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword in the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So again, there's like almost like this riddle, there's this thing going on. It's like, has this cup that's been passed to me, shall I not drink it? Jesus is talking about his death, and Peter's still in this headspace of, of, uh, of overthrowing Roman rule. And, and part of this, I can totally sympathize with it. I think we can, right? We can totally sympathize with this. Um, because our inclination, because of our flesh, we desire to be in a position of prominence in our society. We desire to move towards something that, um, that, that elevates us as a people. And so then when, when Thomas speaks up in, in our passage in chapter 14, verse 5, and he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? This seems totally warranted. Like, this is a question that I think that we would all ask, especially in our society, as kind of skeptical. Like, we were, we're like, geez, why are you talking this riddles? Like, what are you saying? I'm, I'm, I, I, I can't figure it out. I'm, I'm not quite in this headspace. And he just says, like, where are you going? How do we know the way? Again, probably thinking he was headed to the war room. And this, so this is a good question. 
Like, thanks, Thomas, for providing some, like, just being the dude who's willing to speak up here and say, and say, you know, like, this is the straightforward thought process. You say you're going something somewhere, you say we can't come, but then you say we know the way. No, we don't. We don't know where you're going. It's almost like, I, I thought about this, like, if you're having a conversation with a friend, you show up to the office, and, and it's about lunchtime, and you walk into, the, walk into your buddy's office, and you say, man, I'm so hungry. And he just says, okay, see you there. He's like, I missed something. He's like, okay, well, I'll see you there. Okay, see you where? You, and he's like, you know the way. Don't worry about it. He's like, wait a second. No, we didn't decide where we were going to go to eat. You just say, wait, I'm hungry. I need to know where to eat. And so your response would just be like, no, I don't know where we're going. You need to tell me where, where it is that you're going so that I can show up at the same place. So Jesus is saying that there's something coming, but right now in order for that to happen, I have to go off and do it. Jesus is saying this, I have to go off and do it because of who I am. So there's, there's now this new division that's taking place. And, and again, this is, in, this is in view of the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus. This is in view of that. He's got to go do that, and his disciples can't follow because he's doing it for them. So he's just saying, you guys got to sit tight. It's going to happen. I have to go make these preparations. Jesus is about to make that way to the Father. He's about to take the, the sin and bear the weight of the sin of the world on his body, on the tree, in order that we might be reconciled to God. He's about to do that, but only he can do that, and only he can do that by himself. The way that was broken in the garden when Adam sinned, that is what he is going to, to restore. He's going to go rebuild that road on the cross. But isn't it, it's fascinating to me how, how different this passage is from our own inclinations. Like our own inclinations are for us to be making a way. And our, our flesh cries out when we sort of show up and we're, we're thinking about our sin. And we're thinking we feel guilty. We feel shame. We feel like those who, who don't have a real clear understanding of what's going on in our world. Our, our, our first inclination is to do stuff. <coughs> I don't know, I think this, I think it typically goes this way, but like for guys, like we're in our marriage relationships, we're fixers. And I don't know how many times my wife has said to me, she's like, oh, you just, you just got to listen. Like, I'm, I, you don't need to fix this. Um, and, and so like when we look at something like this, when we look at, we, when we reflect in, inside of ourselves, we see sin and we see guilt and we see shame and we see condemnation. Our first inclination is to fix it. Like we want to fix it. And so we do stuff. We just do stuff and we, we say, okay, well, I'm going to do X number of good things. I'm going to, I'm going to cultivate my own righteousness here. I'm going to live a life that's good in order to forge that way out of, Sin. I think that's the human inclination that sort of lies at the heart of every religion outside of true Christianity. It's that what we have to do is build up this, this pot of good things. We have, to, we have to live a life that's good. We have to be true to ourselves. We have to make a, a way through being better than the person you right or left, like if I, if at the end of the end of the day, like I, I rank higher than this person over here, then I'm good. The way has been made for me. 
But that's not the message of the gospel at all. That's not the message of the, of the gospel at all. And John 14, 1 through 6, takes that concept and, and demolishes it. Jesus is the exclusive way to the Father. In verse 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He's saying, I am the only way. No amount of striving, no amount of good works, no amount of righteousness that you cultivate on your own can get you to God the Father. Jesus is the only one that makes a way and the only one that removes us totally from the equation. This is why Jesus can say in verse 14, chapter 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why would we let ourselves be troubled when the message is done? No stuff necessary. Your own righteousness is not sufficient. My righteousness is. Why would we let ourselves be troubled if we know very clearly that Jesus is the way? He, not our law-keeping ability, not our do-gooding, if that's a word, works-comparing selves can make a way. Jesus has made a way, and Jesus is the way. So we rest in that fact, right? We rest in that fact. We no longer are trying to, to cultivate all of these things in our world. We just say, no, like, no longer do I have to forge my own way, my desire, my inclination, and my sinful flesh is to try and fix this, but I cannot. And so we rest in the fact that Jesus has made a way by going to the cross, and Jesus is the way because of who he is. So that's the first, the way. And then Jesus says, I am the, the truth. So Jesus, when he says the truth, he's saying, I am God's truth. I am God's word incarnate. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the scripture. We, we sort of, uh, we, uh, we explored this a little bit last week on Resurrection Sunday when we, when we talked about the fulfillment of scripture when, when Jesus on the Emmaus Road revealed himself to, uh, to, the, to the two dudes who he was talking to. When he revealed himself to those, those guys, he said he just opened up the scriptures so you don't get it yet. He just opened up the scriptures to them and said, here we go, Jesus is the fulfillment. And then later on he reveals to them that he is Jesus. And so when Jesus says, I am the truth, he is saying, I am the fulfillment of scripture. So let me give you a couple examples here. Just out of the Psalms. Um, these are we even talk, we were talking about this in our community group this week that that reading the Old Testament can be really hard and can be really sticky unless you take it and apply it and see that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. So let me just read you a couple of a couple of Psalms. Psalm forty three three. Let's just listen to this. Listen to this because in light of John 14, 1 through 6. Listen to this in the light of John 14, 1 through 6. Psalm 43, 3. The psalmist writes this. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Send out your light. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Send out your truth. Let them lead me. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. 
Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. That looks very, uh, very clearly like what we're reading here in, in John's gospel. He said, I'm preparing a place for you. The Father's house. Leading you. Making a way by light and truth. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Lead them to me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling place. Jesus is the light. Jesus is truth. He leads us to the dwelling place. Look at, look at Psalm 51, 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret, sacred, or secret heart. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This is, this is new covenant reality. And when I say that, what I'm talking about is what, what God revealed to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 33. The Lord says this, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and, they will be, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Psalm 51, 6 again. Behold, you do delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Jesus is God's truth. Jesus is God's word incarnate. Jesus is the wisdom of God. So this new covenant reality for us, this covenant that God has made with his people, that he has set his word, that he has embedded his law within our hearts, and he has written it on them. And he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And this is all possible through the person and work of Jesus Christ. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, take and drink. This is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. What he's saying is, this now, this promise that exists in Jeremiah 31, 33, this is for you now. This is for you now. The law is now written on your heart. And I am your God. And you are my people through the person of Jesus Christ. And consider what Paul writes in Romans 13. If you're kind of like, well, what is he talking about with the law? Consider what Paul writes in Romans 13. That love is ultimately the fulfillment of the law. So we as a people who are in Jesus Christ... We as a people who recognize that Jesus Christ came to die to set sinners free, we are now free to love. We are free to love because he first loved us. Okay, a couple more of these psalms. Psalm, and I'll just read these. So this is Psalm 8611. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That I may walk in truth, that I may walk in the understanding of who Jesus is. Psalm 119.43 The sum of your word of tr is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The sum of your word is truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the word incarnate. Psalm 145.18 
The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. We call upon the Lord by the name of Jesus Christ. We could go on with these. Like There's just tons and tons of examples. We believe that the entire Old Testament is pointing, is painting a picture, pointing us to the person of Jesus Christ. But the takeaway here, Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's word. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. Okay, last point then. So we have the way. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. And then Jesus is the life. Remember what Jesus said in John 11? This was several weeks ago when we were talking about Jesus as the resurrection of life. He who believes in me, Jesus is saying this, he who believes in me will live and never die. He who believes in me will live even if he dies physically. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Life looks like joining Jesus where he's going to the Father's house. That's what Jesus says when he says, I am the life. He says, I now make a way for you to have communion with God. To have right relationship with God. He's made a way. He's the truth and the fulfillment of Scripture. He's returning to receive us to himself. To participate together, even as we talked about, we celebrated yesterday, the resurrection, of, or last week, the resurrection of Jesus we now are participants of that if we are in Jesus Christ. And as the life, Jesus is the one who unites us with God the Father. Death separates us from God. These are, this is the biblical understanding of life and death. Death, separation from God. Life, communion, relationship with God. Jesus is the way to have life, to have communion, to have relationship with God the Father. Remember what John records Jesus saying in John 10, verse 10. Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came that we might have relationship with God the Father and have it abundantly. And then Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Again, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Um, so this week, I had a relatively full week, and... Um, and part of what was going on uh, in my own heart and mind was just like a desire to have rest. I was just thinking to myself, I desire so much just to sit down. It was like I was doing some painting yesterday, and there was this wall that needed to be done with a second coat, and I just looked at it, and I thought to myself, all I want to do is like just say, forget it, and just like put a giant picture over it or something. <laughs> but, but what's going on here is, is my understanding <coughs> That, that life and the communion and the relationship that I have with God the Father is not something that I continue to strive for. So part of, part of what's going on here is we're, we're being pushed to, we're being, we're being called to recognize. And then, okay, so let me, let me finish that anecdote before I move on to the analysis. Okay, so and then I was talking with my wife and I was just like, you know what, like 
I believe very clearly when we have a resurrected body, like our bodies aren't going to break down. We believe in a physical resurrection from the dead. Um, and our bodies aren't going to break down. Um, but I still think that there's going to be rest. There's going to be rest. Why? Because it's in God's nature. On the seventh day, God rested. And we're just going to look, we're going to get into, we're going to experience a right relationship in glory, see God the Father, see Him, worship Him all the time, and we're going to work. Work is a pre-fall mandate, which means that work is something that was given to us before, before the fall, so we're not just going to hang out on a cloud. We're going we're gonna to get out and we're going to like plow the earth and it's going to be exciting. It's going to be invigorating. Our yield is going to be 100%. We're, we're going we're gonna to be super, super pumped about it all the time because it's going to be bringing God glory. And then on the flip side, though, I don't know if it'll look one day a week or whatever the cycles are in our world, but we will sit down and we will say, we will say okay, now it is time to rest. Not because I need it, because my body is broken. Not because, I, not because I can no longer function or move on or my mind is like somewhere else because I'm just overloaded. No longer will I, no longer will we do that because we will just look and say, okay, now we can cease our striving, we can cease working the ground, we don't have to pick this fruit or whatever it is that we're doing for work. We can cease that striving because we recognize that all we need and all we we have is in Jesus Christ. And to me, that, that, that's like the, that's the portrait. When we no longer have to do anything, but we're no longer self-sufficient, we're no longer like, or striving to be self-sufficient, but rather we just sit down and we say, I'm resting because this is part of God's divine nature and who he has made me to be. And not because I experience limitations of a physical body or a broken physical body, but one that is fully seeking to glorify God. So I think that's sort of our conclusion this morning. I think that's the direction that we're going, right? So first of all, let's just think, as, as we conclude, let's just think about the fact that when Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, he's made a way for us, he's fulfilled the scriptures, um, and that he has made a, a, a set of circumstances in which we now can commune with God. That set of circumstances being his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and now ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand. That's the set of circumstances that we're looking at. Where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We, we understand that he's the exclusive way. No longer is our striving, no longer is our desire to cultivate righteousness, no longer is our, our, our seeking to do good or to stack up against our neighbor um, important, but that we look to him and rest in him fully. And so practically the takeaway is this, it's done. When Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished, he was saying it is finished, not, not just simply in that regard, but in, it is finished in the, in the way that the gospel is constantly impacting our lives and renewing us and making us new and transforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It is done, and that one day we will participate in the resurrection from the dead and live together with, with God in perfect communion with him. So the big takeaway is this. We recognize it's done. We don't have to do. We rest. We don't have to strive. 
Jesus is the way. You don't have to make one. Jesus is the truth. He says, send out the, the Holy Spirit, tells us in the Psalm, Psalm 140, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. The Psalm 143, 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. God sent us his son, the second person of the Trinity, in the light of the world, the light of truth, to bring us home. Jesus is the life, that separation from God is not our reality if we are in Him, but communion and relationship with Him is. So finally, just this, and this is what I'll leave you with this morning. If Jesus is the exclusive way to the Father, then you don't have to strive to make your own way. You don't have to conjure up some good stuff to get there. But rather, on the flip side, we rest because we're free. Let's pray.